Please listen carefully. Welcome to Christians in the Public Square with your hosts, Cole Bennett and Scott Self. Hello, and thank you for joining us for the next episode of The Christian Citizen, the podcast where sacred cows make great barbecue, mm-hmm. where you can proudly let your flag fly, and where we are bros, and this week, sisters and bros before politicos. That's right. I'm Cole Bennett. I'm Scott Self. And our special guest today is Dr. Cheryl Bacon, Professor Emerita of Journalism and Mass Communications from Abilene Christian University. Hello, Cheryl. Hi. Thanks for joining us today. I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> well, I have no idea that's a I'm shame. In. I have no idea what I'm in for, but I'm foolishly looking forward to it. No, Scott and I have talked for quite a while about having you as a guest because you often come up in our own conversations off, off air where we talk about the issues that we cover, and we thought we really need to have Dr. Cheryl Bacon on. And what I would like you to do first, I, I mentioned that you were, for years, a professor in ACU's JMC department, but you have quite a path, a career path to have gotten there. I know there's lots of PR and lots of other things. So can you just tell us the jobs that you've had that, that helped you get to where you were? It may not be as interesting as you imagine, but I'm more oh. than happy to share <laughs> yes, it. Yes, please. Let's hear um, it. Out of college, I worked for a state agency as a public information officer for about a year and a half. Uh, then did a master's degree in mass comm and started working in public relations and development for ACU. And I did that for about nine years. Um in various roles. I used to say they liked me, so they kept moving me around until they found something I could do. Um, but I was in media relations and publications. I uh, was assistant to the president for a couple of years, was the legislative liaison for the university for a while. And then eventually, as I was um, finished with all of my uh, doctoral studies except my dissertation, uh, had an opportunity to go back into the classroom, which was a great match for where my family was at that time, and so that's what I did, and eventually became the chair of the department and spent 20 years as chair before I retired last May. And you've been a professional writer in several scenarios, have you um, not? Yes. For the university, a little bit of freelancing, a little bit of PR consulting, especially um, prior to becoming department chair. Department chairs don't have a lot of time for such fun. And so since retiring, I have tried to get my toes back in that water, and I'm doing a little bit of freelancing and consulting again. Wonderful. Well, I, we have some questions for you, and... Um, I could be interrupted at any time. No, I will interrupt you. I'm sure you will, brother. And uh, because this podcast concerns the intersection of our faith and our views on the state. And so, if any of these questions take you there, then let let them do so, because that's one of the reasons why we wanted you on. Your field of JMC and my field of English, especially composition studies, have their root in the classical study of rhetoric. I am not surprised that you are mentioning that word. Well, it has so much to do with what we talked about. And we've never had a conversation where it didn't come up. That's right. And and the the word has several nuances and definitions and stabs at it and so forth. From from your own professional experience, what does this word, how has it come to mean to you? Oh, my goodness. 
Just, You're it's the a expert small question. on that well, subject, not me. See, this is the conversation <laughs> I've been waiting for ever since because this is. I want to hear the the battling perspectives of rhetoric. Well, I'm particularly interested because of your your field is different from mine with the way that it teaches and discusses the word. Yes, I've always felt like you imagined that we teach and discuss the word more than we do. Is that right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, because people who are in journalism and mass communication, for the most part, especially at the undergraduate level and as practitioners, are inherently very practical people who live on the practical side of the industry rather than the theoretical. I was having a conversation the other day with someone who has moved professionally from the theoretical to the application side in a career and about how difficult that was. And it would be equally challenging for me to, to go back. So I think that we probably talk about things that are the application of rhetoric more than we talk about rhetoric. We do talk about... Uh, Things like bias and stereotype in language. We talk about things being inflammatory. We talk about uh, the importance of clarity and concision. We talk about clarity and concision ad nauseum because if you can't do those two things, then you can't write well enough to be a professional in any of our industries. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I don't. I don't really recall ever teaching about rhetoric, but I recall teaching about a lot of the things that when you and I have had conversations, you then make an application out of your rhetorical background. Well, but it does seem that you, uh, in, when you combine JM journalism and mass communication, you end up with a foot in two pools, though, right? I mean, it seems like, and this is the outsider's point of view, but... That journalism is about sp- speaking the truth or revealing the truth or mm-hmm. revealing the, the true story and or discovering truth. And whereas mass communication is about creating um, a narrative or um, maybe that's the wrong word, but persuading an audience. Um, not really. No? no, because actually there's a lot of conversation about whether or not mass communication is a dinosaur term. Interesting. Interesting. Um, Journalism is a form of mass communication. What what mass communication essentially means is communicating to a large audience through media of some sort rather than communicating one-on-one. And so over time, obviously, the way that that message went to the large audience included ink on paper and then sound over the airways and ultimately digitally uh, slash electronically through the internet and other digital communication, social media, and all the rest. So no, journalism is one type of mass communication. The reason that other disciplines wind up in some places in the same academic department um, is because things like advertising also communicates a message to a large audience through some sort of media. Um, public relations is not always mass communication because some aspects of public relations are definitely more one-on-one, one-to-a-small-group, in-person, event-related kinds of things. But to the degree that it uses media, it is also mass communication. Um, Years ago, there was an argument for using mediated communication. Uh, You still have people talk about just getting rid of that term, and then there are others who are ardent supporters of it. I tend to not jump into those kinds of arguments, Mm -hmm. but 
that's the distinction is um, whether it's whether it's advocacy or objective reporting or promotion going from uh, a sender to a large audience. Gotcha. So let me bend the, uh, the question around a little bit. Okay. <clears throat> In my field of teaching writing, we have this sense that we teach all of our students that there is no such thing as discourse that is not persuasive at some level. In fact, one of the most popular textbooks of all time in our field that we use for composition is called Everything's an Argument. And they talk about clothing is an argument. Your tattoos are an argument. If you Science have, is an argument. Science. There's just... So when I hear, when I hear someone from JMC say... Oh, no, we, we strive for objective reporting, and ours is not, it is not persuasive or it is not meant to be persuasive. I, can you unpack whether, that, whether you agree with that or not? Well, I do still teach one class. It's called PR writing. And last night, we were talking about this very briefly in that uh, I always tell students that all public relations communication is designed to either be informative or persuasive. Um, sometimes you have to inform before you can persuade. And so it could be argued that the things about which you choose to inform your audience lay a foundation to be able to later persuade people. But so, you would draw a distinction. There, are, You would say there's such thing as an informative piece of discourse that is not persuasive. Yes, because and you wouldn't agree with that, would you? I would say that because you say you would say. Let me guess. Let me guess what's going on in your head. Okay, you would say that selecting what information we choose to share is, but in and of itself, persuasive. That's the first place I go is the five thirty evening news because students inevitably will say, "Hey, that's just David Muir telling us what happened today," and I'll say, "Well." David Muir has a palette of things that happened today, and he's choosing to tell us which seven things to tell us. And back when George Bush threw up on the, the Japanese prime minister. prime minister, that was on every single one, but nothing about President Clinton or Obama ever passing out or throwing up ever made the news. And so... That's one example I can think of quickly. Did you happen people... to notice any of either of them throwing up on the Japanese prime minister? No, but I never noticed anything of them that concerned a bodily function failing that was ever reported. And actually, I think we knew a lot about Clinton's bodily functions failing. Eventually, Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> I need an adult. Yes, we eventually did hear about that. But I, I think the very selection of what to tell. Um, is is a rhetorical okay. move, is a persuasive move. But but let's back away from that just a little okay. bit for the sake of argument and move to um, a different part of the broadcast, okay. two different parts of the broadcast, uh, weather and sports. Mm -hmm. When mm. a uh, sports reporter or anchor says that the game ended with a shot at the buzzer to result in a one-point victory for the whomever... That is sharing information, right? It's, it's pretty difficult to say that's an argument. When the forecaster says the, the temperature is 32 degrees this morning, but the chill factor is 17, that's just information. A smart person might think, well, that persuades me to wear a coat. But that wasn't the intent of the information. Now, both of those are quantitative, and so 
Often quantitative is probably less persuasive. Sometimes it might be more persuasive because it is inherently so factual. I'm actually on your side of this argument, but I'm going to make the devil's argument. Are you saying I'm the devil? Yes. I just want to make clear that... Yes. Um, So, in 2016, actually this may have been 2015, I can't remember which year, uh, when Donald Trump first announced that he was going to run for president. Um, so many news outlets treated this as a kind of clown, almost right. comedic mm-hmm. uh, kind of piece of information to the degree that HuffPo made the decision to cover it as entertainment rather than as politics. Wow. And so they put those articles and they put the coverage of Donald Trump on the entertainment page. And of course, at some point, they have to move that coverage over, right? Correct. But there's a, there is a... Um, an editorial decision in a, I don't know whether they're trying to persuade the audience, but they're definitely suggesting that they have a point of view on what Donald Trump's candidacy was. Oh, absolutely. And, okay. and that that kind of goes back to the old gatekeeping function of media, okay. that there there's massive amounts of information out there, and somebody has to decide what is going to be in print on the air on your screen. It, it's... Because it can't be everything all at once. So so there is that function, and there always has been. It's a little bit different today than it used to be. But And you're correct. Putting it on an entertainment page instead of a news page when it initially came out. Um, is a rhetorical decision. It is. It's also uh, perhaps less of a decision than a continuation of coverage. Because Donald Trump had been covered as an entertainer because that is how he was presenting himself for years. Right. He was the star of a primetime television show. Okay, you're arguing this very well. who are primetime television, I I thank you, uh, (laughs) primetime television stars tend to get covered on the entertainment page. So you could say, well, they were just continuing to do what they'd always done, and yes, they were going to at some point have to decide when do we move into news. Whereas some other news organizations that do less entertainment coverage, I won't say none because they all do too much, but, um, you know, the old standards, CBS, NBC, ABC, New York Times, The Washington Post, do far less entertainment coverage than The Huffington Post. Right. Or BuzzFeed or something like that. Right. And so their coverage of him had been very limited. Now, in New York, there had been more of it because there it was local. Gotcha. Okay? Yeah. But, but let me tell you why I'm, why I'm claiming that I was playing the devil's advocate. Because you're the devil. No, because you're the devil. That's <laughs> okay. the whole point of this. Okay. No, because um, something that Cheryl said I think is really important. Sometimes the weather is just the weather. And reporting on it is not necessarily an act of rhetoric. And that, go ahead. Well, <laughs> your mouth is open. Well, I'm dying to, to have one quick response, which is okay. if the 32 degrees or the heavy rains coming is bad enough, they'll put it in the news section. And then he'll ele- he or she will elaborate it on it later. That is a rhetorical placement, and there is such a thing as the argument of arrangement. Arrangement is persuasive. If they leave the forecaster to the third unit of news, that's one thing. If they bring that person in at the beginning and say, oh, no, there is rain coming you need to know about now, it's a different level of persuasion. So, sort of. But 
Sort of. But see, here's the thing. You have to talk about which which media outlet are you talking about there? Because the way sure. television news works is if if they move weather to the top, they're having their weather reporter do that. They just happen to move the story to the top. Or part of be- it to the top. Or part of it to the top. Because it meets enough of the basic criteria for what makes something newsworthy right. that it merits that. Right. And so this might be a good time to talk about the fact that those include things like proximity, how close is it to me, mm-hmm. um, pro- prominence, mm-hmm. is this a famous person, um, how many people are affected, is there inherent conflict, is there human interest? Those are the sorts of I standard... I think you're making my point, though, that it's that yes. the newscast is a rhetorical piece of discourse that is I never said that. I never said the newscast wasn't a rhetorical okay. piece of discourse. I just said that information may not always be inherently rhetorical. Okay. Amen, sister. We're going to disagree with that. The agate agate in the sports section is not inherently reported. The agate is the the columns of uh, statistics from last night's games. That That is just all of the information. And if you choose to dig through it, you can make a persuasive argument, perhaps, but it's just there. Okay. That's information. Let me try one more thing to see if I might change your mind, and then we'll move on. Okay. If I'm seven. Years old? I, seven years old. Okay. And I'm sitting cross-legged. I'm thinking of my seven-year-old self sitting cross-legged in the middle of my living room. Okay. And I'm watching the news with my mom and dad, mm-hmm. and the agate comes on. What it's communicating to me is these are the school systems and their scores that I need to know about because they're important. And that is the persuasive piece of discourse. Well, first of all, agate is exclusively in the newspaper. Sorry. Scoreboards are on TV. Scoreboards is okay. Yeah. So Or in the newspaper. I'm think I am I am it is telling me this is a piece of news to take up a sheet of paper in this newspaper or a scoreboard on a screen. This is important and I need to know I need to understand it's important. So to me that's persuasive and the second a similar thing that I noticed in my lifetime was on ABC News when Peter Jennings was there every single newscast with no exception he would say today the Dow Jones gained or lost and the, then he stopped saying it but it was shown on a commercial break a fade out for like 5 seconds mm-hmm. before it faded out and now it's not on there at all. And I I watched that migration go from from those three areas and it as a news viewer I'm thinking oh perhaps that is a less important piece of news it is there was actually a different reason for that (laughs) go ahead well a lot of things when television had the ability to convey information with graphics instead of just by a person talking it gave them the ability to put more information in that 30-minute period by, by using both oral rece- receivers, um, oral communication, mm-hmm. and visuals. We can thank CNN for that, actually. Um, and so that was what was happening there, is he didn't have to say it anymore. They could just put it on the screen and you could see it. Then, when the world reached a point where those numbers are available to all of us on our phones. Or there were other networks who were covering that in grand detail. At that point, there was not a lot of motivation for them to spend much time on that. One of the biggest challenges for the newscast 
is not terribly different than what was once a challenge for the weekly magazine, and that is how do we make this newsy when everybody already knows it? Interesting, right. The 24-hour news cycle did that first with cable, and then eventually with the Internet, those news vehicles that are a little more static, your morning newspaper, a newscast that happens at 6 o'clock or at 10 o'clock, for the most part, is sharing with you information that you already know and maybe is summarizing it, maybe is giving you a little bit of added detail that's come along. But as news organizations pushed harder and harder and harder to be digital first, it has almost rendered the newscast to be a dinosaur. That's interesting. There's a reason why this stuff matters. When we're talking about Christian citizenship, right? Yeah. Um, and a lot of it for me is um, how how do you think this? Put your Christian hat on for a second, as if you weren't wearing it before. <laughs> Thank <laughs> but, you. Um, put your Christian hat on and think a little bit. Help us think a little bit about what this means in terms of the way we engage in public discourse, the way we're informed, the way that I'm thinking specifically of. For example, I've been pretty critical about evangelicals and the ways that evangelicals are informed in the public square um, that tend to have very um, specific filters and that those specific filters end up persuading the audience in directions. Talk to us a little bit about, you know, you, from a from a journalism professor's point of view, what should Christians know about when they're engaging in the public discourse, at, when their ears are on? Wow. Well, let me back up a little okay. bit into your preface of that question. When people first started figuring out that the internet had application beyond email and that it could also be developed into a platform that shared information to a broad public, and then newspapers really, even before broadcast, started seeing it as a way to get information out quickly. The thing that scholars in media, as well as cynics in the news business, said <laughs> was, this will eventually lead to people picking and choosing the source of information they're willing to pay any attention to. And that has happened, and it has happened on steroids. Mm. And it's sad. Perhaps it didn't have to be that way. But human nature being what it is, you know, we tend to socialize with people that we like being around. And that's not a new phenomenon. So it's not surprising that when people had the option to not just listen to Walter Cronkite for 30 minutes... I mean, as opposed to David Brinkley or whomever, but they, they had hundreds of choices mm. instead of three mm -hmm. that they suddenly started saying, well, I don't really like what he just said. I won't listen to him anymore. I like what she said. I'm just going to listen to her. Well, when that happens, you allow your... You allow the funnel to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow and until you're only hearing what you want to hear from the people that you want to hear it from. And you inherently become less informed. 
And if you're prone to it, you start seeing everyone else as biased and wrong. Mm. So somehow, we once upon a time were willing to disagree a bit with the broadcaster that we saw in the air. Okay. Or the editor of our local newspaper, because tolerating that level of disagreement was required in order to be informed. Very interesting. Okay. But now we don't have to tolerate people we disagree with. And worse than that, we now find it acceptable to vilify people we disagree with. And that is where I think the the Christian concern comes in. Because I I can imagine certain Christians hearing me explain this and say, well, but of course. (laughs) Why would we want to pollute our minds with the sinful ways of the world? And can't you see that this person, this network, this publisher, this viewpoint is wrong and sinful? Mm -hmm. Therefore, I will only listen to those who are pure in heart, which usually translates as who see things like I do. Right, right. And and we, as a result, have lots and lots of people who are far less informed than they used to be, even though there's massively more information out there that they could be choosing to absorb. Boy, I, she earned her. She earned her. The ten bucks we're paying her. I think we just I get stop ten bucks. Now. <laughs> you get a free. Filter coffee. Two, <laughs> two coffees. Okay. Cheryl, I think you're articulating that very well. I wonder if you would agree with this e- extension of what you're saying. It would also help these news outlets to whom people have become um, tunnel visioned mm-hmm. upon if they would carefully and respectfully present opposite views or opposite accounts of a happening. Something happened. Here's how. This is what people are trying to how people are trying to make sense of it, right? Uh, which I think once news agencies saw the happening that you just described, mm-hmm. where they were gathering lots and lots of viewers because they were saying things only one way, stopped trying so hard to say things two ways. That's kind of a chicken or an egg thing. Okay. Um, I'm not going to sit here and defend all news coverage as being noble and fully objective <laughs> and always as as pristine and in its intent as it could be because clearly that's not the case. Um, as to which came first, I'm not really sure. And the old question of presenting both sides is, as you well know, through your rhetorical studies... <laughs> far more complex than just presenting both sides. And then there comes a moral question that journalists have to reckon with about is it morally right to give equal time Mm -hmm. to multiple sides when one or more of those sides are clearly immoral or lying or despicable in their intent? Or not supported by any data. Correct. Yeah. And so we'll have situations where they'll say, well, they didn't even say what so-and-so thought. Well, so-and-so's a bumbling idiot, you know. <laughs> so why should they give that person as much time as they gave to this highly credible source with documentable evidence? Now, those are really easy examples. Where it gets much harder is where people disagree on which is credible and which is not, or are both of them somewhat credible, and um, then it becomes really, really difficult. 
Okay, and I have a, a follow-up question about the Christian hat that you've always been wearing since I've known you, Scott. She didn't just take it off and put it on. Which is when, I, when I've seen you engage in discussion, both on social media and in real life and talking with people in groups, and people often, people often put you, like we did, with a microphone in your hand and say, tell us what you think, right? I've, I've known you so long, I've seen that happen a lot. And it always strikes me that you, you're very careful to be centrist, I would say. And I'm wondering how, what are you up to whenever people say, for example, on your Facebook page, people will, will put mm-hmm. things on your page and say, Cheryl, what do you think? Or you will come up with some a recent event and say, hey, here's what I think. And boy, is it really even-toned. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that a product of your faith or a product of your training? What are you up to? I I think it is a product of my training and of my faith. I think it is an interesting on the on the training side, it's kind of an interesting convergence of my training in journalism and in public relations. Just as uh, in an English department, there's a little bit of a disciplinary battle that goes on between the uh, composition people and the literature folks. And the creative writing folks. Yes, and the creative writing folks. You <laughs> right. know. I mean, almost every <laughs> academic discipline, once we get to know it, we find out, oh, they, d- they don't all see things the same way. You know. <laughs> well, within, within media, there's often an inherent distrust between the journalist and the public relations person. And the stereotypical journalist will say that all PR people are hacks. And they're only going to tell you what they want to tell you, and they're not going to ever tell you the truth. And the PR person will say they never want to hear what we have to say. They just want to find the dirt. You know, well, really and truly, n- neither of those stereotypes is accurate, mm. though occasionally they are. Mm. Okay? So, <laughs> I think that... Um, That's be- a very centrist answer. <laughs> well, no, but I, un- I because, this, is impo- this is interesting here. Because yeah. I've taught both of those things, because right. we are a relatively small program. And so, all of us have to do more than one thing. Mm-hmm. And so, since I mostly have taught writing, I have taught writing to journalists and I have taught writing to public relations uh, professionals or young hope-to-be professionals. And the thing that I talk to both of them about is truth. Do you have an obligation to the truth that is greater than your obligation to your publisher, to your public, to your employer, to your client? Your obligation to the truth is your first obligation. From that point, their goals diverge somewhat. Because they do have an obligation to their client. They do have an obligation to their publisher and to the the community. Um, So having come out of both of those, I think that's a part of it. we we all need to seek truth wherever it leads us. And I think that is also biblical. Oh, yeah. I want to unpack this with you a little bit. So uh, your position um, in kind of holding two groups of two opposing ideas or two groups of people in suspension uh, and, and being able to hold on to both has to do with your willingness to kind of unpack what is true in either case? In other words, not to see people who are anti-vaxxers as a, caric- as a caricature, nor a medical community as a caricature either, right? Yes. 
it's, it's harder really hard in some for instances. Me to go anywhere with the vaxxer thing because <laughs> I have very strong opinions on that, and I think the science is very clear. But um, yes, I do think it's not generally useful to see people as caricatures, even though some people work so hard to live up to it. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that is to go back to the question about Trump being covered in entertainment as opposed to news. Trump spent the first 60 or so years of his life creating a caricature that made him a lot of money. Right. It is not fair to say that the news media made him a caricature. Donald Trump very shrewdly made one of himself and was very successful in doing so. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard to back out of that at that point in your life. Sure. And we see that in other situations. I mean, wasn't it Bill Bradley, the former professional mm-hmm. basketball That's player right. who was a senator for a long time? From what I recall, he was he was a very fine and well-respected senator, but people always mentioned that he was also a former NBA player. Right. Because that's how he first came to fame. That that's is right. how he first became well-known to the public. And quite frankly, there were probably more people who knew more about his basketball career than his uh, career in politics. And so that was a way to remind people, okay, you, you know about this guy. He, he used to play in the NBA. Well, that's, that's what's happened to Trump. And, so, and the fact that his persona hasn't changed all that much. Mm-hmm. Let's face it, he made his show successful with You're Fired. Mm -hmm. So there's not been anything about the way that he has conducted his public self that's too far off from that persona. And so you think, well, okay, maybe it's not just a persona. Maybe that's really who he is. And uh, we've seen other people who have done the same kind of thing, but it... I think it's one reason why I try to say to students, the things that you do and the things that you allow yourself to be photographed doing and the things that you say on social media Mm -hmm. will follow you in some cases for the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. It's easy to blame all of that on the media. I won't say that they're innocent, but I do think that's kind of a cop-out that Essentially, what happens is you look at the media and you see a reflection of society and of the inherent character of people. What I really appreciate ab- about this and what Cheryl is saying is I, th- I think she's suggesting we engage with a bit of discernment. And I don't know that that kind of, that kind of character or quality is actually asked of us enough as Christian citizens to engage in discourse through, you know, with a lens of discernment. Maybe to think about what's going on in this situation, to think about what what voices are influencing me, to think about uh, what my own positionality is and and where I'm coming where I'm coming to in this in this discourse. That kind of mindfulness or discernment is something I think is missing in a lot of our in a lot of the ways we instruct one another, particularly in Christian circles. I think we tend to describe um, the, our positions rather than the act of discernment. We, we tend to suggest that your job is to be against abortion without having the discernment to understand why somebody might be pro-choice, mm-hmm. right? We, 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 we go through this 
um, education process, and I'm speaking specifically of evangelical circles, but even in evangelical circles, our means of training one another is believe these things. And I'm using my fingers here with counting like everybody can see me, but it's, it's one of the things I think that we miss out on is a real opportunity to actually ask what is truth, not in a cynical way, but to, to really try and unpack and understand um, the others around us. And there are times where I think that we could say this particular voice is not really providing me that much in terms of analyzing what truth is and, and, uh, and, then, and also to engage with the kind of epistemic humility Right, where we can also believe that maybe other people who believe something are also smart or they're also of good intent. That is, I think that's exactly right. And I think that that kind of training and opportunity and environment is missing in our churches. And I think it's missing in our schools. Really? I consider myself to be enormously blessed to have spent the fifth grade through my junior year in high school in what was at the time ranked as one of the top five school districts in the country in Littleton, Colorado. Me too, Cheryl. I forgot that. Yes. Um, I remember standing on the stage at Isaac Newton Junior High School when I was in the ninth grade, and the entire ninth grade had been divided into two political parties, and we had to have separate conventions and develop a platform, and and then... um, you know, had the whole gymnasium, auditorium, whatever we called it, full. And I remember standing on that stage, and I found myself in the situation of having been elected a leader, but was forced to present a platform that I was not entirely in agreement with. And I remember being booed for the way that I described the potential loss of life in the Vietnam War. Mm. When you're 13. That's not cool. That is not cool. (laughs) But that experience of having to wrestle through issues that were affecting my generation and, and my parents' generation and understand that people can come to different conclusions on different subjects and feel very strongly about them, that was a really important lesson. And then in high school, uh, because I got involved in journalism very early, my high school journalism teacher had us writing polemics on issues in high school. Mm-hmm. He had us doing research and telephone surveys and presenting our results to the school board about decisions they were making about our school and policy. That's pretty phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Now, they... They had the ability to do that because of the kind of school that it was. But, you know, it it, it was not a school without its reprobates, you know. I mean, it it was a very suburban, middle-class school district and and it was greatly lacking in diversity, um, in ethnic diversity and racial diversity. Um, But... That's beside the point. They decided that was important to do that. Mm -hmm. And so they taught me how to see that there's more than one side. And one way they did that was by saying, this is your good friend that you go to the football game with and that you hang out with, but you don't get to be in the same party. Hmm. You're going to be in different political parties, and you're both going to have to go research the issues, and you're going to have to defend them. Hmm. Now, people in debate learn to do that. But this was this was saying every single kid in really? the ninth grade yeah. is going to do wow. this. Wow. I think those were invaluable experiences, and I don't think that we really do that. 
very much anymore. I have a bias, you know. I mean, but when you teach kids to write to the prompt instead of saying, what would you like to write about today? Here, here's the things you have to accomplish, but you get to choose the topic. And I know, uh, I mean, I've heard public school teachers say that kids look paralyzed when you say that to them. We were wondering whether it's true. We, we've been thinking out loud with one another whether it's true that the function of participating, especially in social media, but participating in the public square is not about persuading my neighbor, but actually speaking my truth or telling my story. And that that in and of itself is extremely solipsistic and um, potentially well, I mean, we identify truth through our own lens, right? right. And our own, our, our own selves. I was just so impressed with that six-bit word. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Six bits. <laughs> I'm making money today. <laughs> and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Scott, but didn't this grow out of a discussion? We were talking about how reporters, rather than saying, uh, comment on this event, please, would be like, wouldn't you agree that it murders people to have troops go to? I mean, they are clearly packing their question with bias and a, and their desire to express an opinion. Some are. Some are. Yes. More than what you just said a moment ago, which was to get at the truth. And I think that's more likely to happen when the person asking the question is doing so on camera or on mic. But, I mean, and, and there's two reasons for that. Okay. So one of them is um, the looking at it more negatively, the reason may be that their desire is to get an opinion out. Um, another thing that happens is sometimes, you know, I've got 20 seconds here. I need this person to get to a point before my 20 seconds is up. And so you set up a question in order to skip the small talk. Mm. Now, if you're not really skilled at that or if your motives are not pure – it can definitely betray your own biases. And let me say this. Objectivity is a goal, not a location. Amen, sister. And so I, I think that that's something I've always said to students. None of us are purely objective. You know, when I talk about ob objectivity and bias in class, I used to say not all bias is um, malevolent. Sometimes it's pretty benign. I have a pretty serious bias in favor of Mexican food. I love Mexican food. If you ask me to go to dinner, I'm going to pick a Mexican restaurant eight times out of ten. That is not a malevolent bias, unless I'm a food critic. And if I choose to use my bias in favor of Mexican food to always diss the Chinese place, then it has become a problem. And so everybody has them, and half of the battle is just learning what they are so that you can recognize how to monitor yourself in that That's one of the biggest challenges I have with when we talk about qualitative methods with my doc students is that there are so many that believe their job is to not be biased. We embrace our bias. You know, that your, your perspective on the data and yourself, they're, they're inexorable. The, the lens belongs to you and it's been, it's been fashioned by you over time. And so you are biased and we just try to embrace it and try to identify in what ways can I think about how my bias is being displayed here. But it's not necessarily a bad. Right? It's, yeah, it's sometimes it, it just is. It can be. It can be. If, if, I mean, even in qualitative research, if your bias is so strong that you use it to ignore what you discover. Right. Because it, 
but I want that could be a problem. But I want to I want to come back though, and I'm, I'm not only concerned about the way that the news media does it. My other part of my concern is the ways that we feel it's incumbent upon us to speak a truth rather than to engage in persuasion. So think about Westboro Baptist Church, right, in Kansas, and they have the signs that say in very indelicate terms that God does not love homosexual people, right? But they don't put it that way. They put it in very drastically disgusting ways. That is not about persuasion. That is about speaking one's truth or speaking what one believes is true. And here I pat myself on the back for having uh, uh, defended um, uh, my truth and spoken my truth in the public square. I don't think that's persuasion. And I think that we've come to a point where we've reinforced, again, talking about the way that churches and that Christianity trains itself. I think we've come to a point where we have congratulated ourselves that uh, we speak our truths, that I speak the truth about abortion without trying to persuade other people about what I believe about abortion, right? That I speak the truth about what uh, people's relationships, how people should live in their relationships, but it's not about persuasion. It's just about speaking my truth. And that's where I think... Uh, we fail as pr- Christians in the public square is we fail in so far as we believe our job is something other than what it is. Which is virtue signaling. If I hold a sign that's very, very nastily written or very harshly written, even though I'm pretty convinced that it won't change anyone's mind, I still do it to persuade people that I'm virtuous. So it's persuasion at a different level. Okay. Well, and even, you know, wow. again, we kind of talked about this last night. Command is a persuasive strategy. Think about all of the posters from World War II. I want you was Uncle Sam pointing mm-hmm. his finger. That was mm-hmm. that was a command strategy in terms of persuasion. Now, is it appropriate for everything? <laughs> no, because people get tired of being bossed around. But sometimes it's useful. You know, I mean, think about um, click it or ticket. That's mm-hmm. a command. Mm-hmm. It's, it's giving you a direction. We also talked last night some about the buzz driving is drunk driving. That's not a command. It moves people through a process of coming to a realization. It's a really effective campaign. It's a proposition. To yeah, yeah, because for the most part, telling people don't drive drunk hasn't worked very well. <laughs> Interesting. You know? Right. And so it, it can be. The, the Westboro thing, if it was effective... It would have worked by now. It, they yeah. haven't figured that out. Right. It it doesn't work, it, and I think that it doesn't work for reasons both related to persuasion and to the obvious lack of Christian value. That's just not how Christians treat people. Mm-hmm. That is not how Jesus treated people. And so... Doing that belies who they say they are, in addition to being an extremely ineffective communication tool. Right. I want to. I've been thinking of a bit of a thought experiment question that's may not fit that definition exactly, but you t- you spoke a moment ago about how uncovering, searching for, and uncovering truth you feel is one of the ways that you bring your faith to your to your work. Imagine, Cheryl, that the Council for Christian Colleges and Universities asks you to come and speak to a – they have gathered all first-year JMC majors from Christian colleges into a room, a large room. And they say, please, the benefit of your wisdom about integrating faith and work, 
what are some things you might have to say to them? So, if it's all kinds of students in all kinds of JMC fields, that would be a little different than what I might say specifically to those who hope to be journalists versus those to that hope to go to the persuasive arts like advertising and public relations. Okay. I would, first of all, talk about truth and that your first obligation is to the truth, not, as I said a while ago, not to your client, not to your publisher, not even to your audience. Your first obligation is to the truth. And your second obligation as a journalist is to your audience, is to your reader, but first to the truth. I think that I would say to them the thing that I have said to lots of prospective students and some parents of those prospective students, often to their chagrin through the years when I've been giving a tour and hoping to recruit a student, and I will get a baited question from a parent (laughs) about uh, how do you teach students not to be biased journalists who are only out to support the liberal agenda, and you can only imagine where they go from there. And I I always said, well, one of my goals has always been not to produce churchy journalists. I would be failing if that's what I did. But What would a churchy journalist be? Someone whose agenda in their reporting matches the doctrine of their um, gotcha. church. Mm-hmm. Whether that is about a regarding policy, issue policy or, or lifestyle or whatever it might be. Morality. That... If you are a Christian, you should be able to go out, and if you have very strong feelings opposing abortion, you should not only be able to, but you are obligated to have a civil interview with a person who is strongly pro-choice and faithfully report what they have to say. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't be a journalist. I usually leave that part off when I'm talking to the parents, because I've already upset them enough when I say I don't want churchy journalists. But... Because they do. They they imagine that the best thing I can do is to equip Christian soldiers to march out there with their reporter's notebook and a microphone. And that is not what journalists are supposed to do. Any more than doctors are supposed to only operate on people that they think have lives worth saving. Mm. That gives me chills. And let me tell you why. Because what you're, what you're describing here is, you know, you're, I think you would say if you were speaking to a secular audience, your job is to tell the truth, right? But here you are speaking to a Christian audience and saying your job is to tell the truth. Right. What, is, do you st- what is distinct is that we're better at it. This is the Apology of Timothy. When, and this is a, a 7th century document where uh, Timothy is, is called in to defend Christianity to uh, a, a Muslim king. And what he says is, we are your best citizens. We're the, the, the reason that you need us here is we are the best people in your town. We are the ones who are always peaceful. We are the ones who always pay our tributes. We are the ones who always do what is, what is asked of us. We are your best citizens. And it's not so much that we are your best citizens, and by the way, we also walk around with halos on our heads. It's that we take seriously the work that's set before us. So when you're saying a job of a journalist is to tell the truth, and then you say to a Christian student, I'm going to ask you to tell the truth. That to me is very stirring because it accentuates the possibility that we could do what we do with greater intention, with greater purpose. Um, But it doesn't necessarily mean I become uh, different. I just do it better. And I think that for me, that is what brings me back to that place of moderation. Really? Now, not everyone does. I think there are people who have great respect for truth who land ideologically in a different place than I have landed. Okay. And I understand that. But for me, 
those two things are pretty inextricably rooted together because, see, I happen to know that y'all don't have the same views on all political issues. I'm assuming there have been some (laughs) other podcasts where that became more clearly apparent than it has today. It's hard to get more opposite than a socialist and a libertarian. Right. Right. (laughs) But I know you both well enough to uh, trust your heart in its pursuit of truth. Okay. So that's that's where it's taken you, and I have to I have to respect that, even if I don't always agree with it. But for me, you know, I could have some arguments with the Apostle Paul about a few things. <laughs> yeah, really. But I I do believe that when he said, you know, I become all things to all people by the grace of God, I might save some. That that was that was an appeal to moderation. And I think there are some other places in his writings where we see that same sort of thing. And um, so let me understand you. It's not moderation of uh, like on a political spectrum as much as it is moderation in the way you engage that conversation. Yes, and yes. I mean, yes, and I, yes. I am in a pretty moderate. I'm I'm pretty moderate on the political spectrum. And you feel that's a manifestation of your Christian duty uh, or perspective. Okay, My I Christian can appreciate that. All right. Because we all have a Christian duty that has landed us in different places. Right. Okay. But we have different Christian perspectives that grow that's out of who we are and yeah, who, who reared us. Yeah. And my perspective, as well as my duty, has taken me to that place. That is funny because you've made the defense that your, 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 your Christian perspective is what causes you to be a libertarian. That's right. And I the same for mine. And now we have the centrist view that this is my Christian perspective. That's fascinating, That's Cheryl. what Cheryl does. <laughs> You're something else. That's right. <laughs> I can't tell you how much we appreciate you coming and talking this stuff through with us. Uh, it seems to me that we've heard a couple of different perspectives that are consistent with some of the things that we've talked about in previous episodes. That it's not necessarily our job to make the world act in a more moral way, but to engage in public discourse in ways that uh, are both savvy in terms of what we hear and also savvy in the way in which we speak. So, you know, I'm thinking about, when Cheryl was speaking earlier, I was thinking about that when Jesus says, uh, be wise as serpents and gentle as doves, you know, that wise as serpents is a lot to do with the way we take in inputs and the way we hear what people have to say and the way that I might be manipulated. But gentle as doves has to do with what my outputs are and the way that I engage in the public square as a speaker. Um, And I think we sometimes assume that our job is to flip those over and just listen to everybody uh, and accept everything, but then stand and speak our truth. And, but, but if we can, if we can kind of hold on to a sense that our job is to be cautious, to be aware, to be thoughtful of what we what we hear in public discourse, but then also uh, to be careful in the way we engage in public discourse. That to me sounds like something I could get on board with, regardless of what my perspective was. I think being willing to embrace the humility that's required to accept another person's expression of their Christian faith is really critical. I am struck by how sad it is that three consecutive presidents, very different presidents ideologically, but President Clinton, the second President Bush, and actually even we could say four, start with with the elder President Bush, um, and President Obama, all were 
fairly overt at different times in expressing their personal Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Politically, they landed in very different places. Mm -hmm. But if you listen to the things they said about how they came to faith and what they believe, they're remarkably similar. Mm -hmm. The tragedy is when Christians who landed in the place where President Bush lands refuse to accept the sincerity of President That's Obama's very faith. Interesting, right. And when those whose ideology aligns with President Obama's refuse to accept the sincerity of President Bush's faith, mm-hmm. it is completely inconsistent with where I think Jesus was going when the disciples came to him and said, those people over there, they're healing people, but they are not of our party. Right, right. And he said, if they're not, you know, if they're not against us, then they're for us. Interesting. Um, You know, he was kind of saying, they're believers, and they are out doing good work, and they are out seeking to do the will of God, and no, they're not traveling this road in quite the same direction we are, so lay off. We have to come to a point as Christians where we're willing to have a conversation with people acknowledging the genuineness of their faith in order to have a civil engagement. Our guest today has been Dr. Cheryl Bacon. Cheryl, thanks for coming by. Thank you, Cheryl. This has been delightful. Thank you. Thank you.